Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. <clears throat> I'd like to uh, start the talk off with a story. <clears throat> Here's a nighttime story for you. <clears throat> Although it's still light. <clears throat> the story uh, concerns a monastery that had fallen upon hard times. <clears throat> Once a great order, as a result of waves of anti-monastic persecution in the 17th and 18th centuries and the rise of secularism in the 19th, all its branch houses were lost and it had become decimated to the extent that there were only five monks left in the decaying mother house, the abbot and four others, all over 70 in age. Clearly, it was a dying order. In the deep woods surrounding the monastery, there was a little hut that a rabbi from a nearby town occasionally used for a hermitage. Through their, their many years of prayer and contemplation, the old monks had become a bit psychic, so they could always sense when the rabbi was in his hermitage. The rabbi is in the woods. The rabbi is in the woods again, they'd whisper to each other. As he agonized over the imminent death of his order, it occurred to the abbot at one such time to visit the hermitage and ask the wise rabbi if by some possible chance he could offer any advice that might save the monastery. The rabbi welcomed the abbot at his hut. But when the abbot explained the purpose of his visit, the rabbi could only commiserate with him. I know how it is, he exclaimed. The spirit has gone out of the people it is the same in my town. Almost no one comes to the synagogue anymore. So the old abbot and the old rabbi wept together. Then they read parts of the Torah and quietly spoke of deep things. The time came when the abbot had to leave, and then they embraced each other. It's been a wonderful thing that we should meet after all these years, the abbot said, but I've still failed in my purpose for coming here. Is there nothing you can tell me no piece of advice that you can give me that would help me save my dying order? No, I'm sorry, the rabbi responded. I have no advice to give, but the one thing I can tell you is that the Messiah is one of you. When the abbot returned to the monastery, his fellow monks gathered around him to ask, well, what did the rabbi say? He couldn't help, the abbot answered. We just wept and read the Old Testament together. The only thing he did say, just as I was leaving, it was something cryptic, was that the Messiah is one of us. I don't know what he meant. In the days and weeks and months that followed, the old monks pondered this and wondered whether there was any possible significance to the rabbi's words. The Messiah is one of us. Could he possibly have meant one of us monks here at the monastery? If that's the case, which one? <laughs> Do you suppose he meant the abbot? Oh yes, if he meant anyone, he probably meant Father Abbot. He's been our leader for more than a generation. On the other hand, he might have meant Brother Thomas, 
Certainly Brother Thomas is a holy man. Everyone knows that Thomas is a man of light. Certainly he could, it could have been Thomas. Certainly he could not have meant Brother Elred. Elred gets crotchety at times. But come to think of it, even though he's a thorn in people's sides, when you look back on it, Elred is virtually always right. Maybe the rabbi did mean Brother Elred. But surely not Brother Philip. Philip is so passive, a real nobody. But then, almost mysteriously, he has a gift for somehow always being there when you need him. He just magically appears by your side. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. Of course, the rabbi didn't mean me. He couldn't have possibly meant me. I'm just an ordinary person. Yet, supposing he did, supposing I am the Messiah, oh God, not me. It couldn't be that, I couldn't be that much for you, could I? As they contemplated in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect on the off chance that one among them might be the Messiah. And on the off, off chance that each monk himself might be the Messiah, they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. Because the forest in which it was situated was beautiful, it so happened that people still occasionally came to visit the monastery to picnic on its tiny lawn, to wander along some of its paths, even now and then to go into the dilapidated chapel to meditate. As they did so, without even being conscious of it, they sensed the aura of extraordinary respect that now began to surround the five old monks and seemed to radiate out from them and permeate the atmosphere of the place. There was something strangely attractive, even compelling about it. Hardly knowing why, they began to come back to the monastery more frequently to picnic, to play, to pray. They began to bring their friends to show them this special place. And their friends brought their friends. Then it happened that some of the younger men who came to visit the monastery started to talk more and more with the old monks. After a while, one asked if he could join them. Then another. And another. So within a few years, the monastery had once again become a thriving order, and thanks to the rabbi's gift, a vibrant center of light and spirituality in the realm. We find what we look for, and what we look for in others, we actually see and even more can bring out. There is a, a phenomenon in uh, neuroscience uh, called a confirmation bias. And that means that whatever your belief is, you will see, your brain will actually confirm what your assumption is. So for instance, if you see others as your adversary, then 
You'll notice all the people who are your adversary and you'll also send out a particular energy that will activate a place where people will feel like an adversary. If you see others as basically kind, worthy of respect, that's what you'll notice. And also, that's what you'll bring out of them too. People will relax around you, feel at ease, and uh, let their goodness come out. So we have a very um, strong influence in our field. Um, And I want to talk tonight about how this influence works, particularly um, uh, as far as metta practice goes in the sense of um, looking for the good. You know, just imagine you're in a, a room and somebody comes in and they see all your flaws. You sense that they're judging you. How do you feel? flawed or small, maybe a little bit anxious. And somebody else can come into that room, maybe they know all your flaws, but they're just looking and seeing how beautiful you are. How do you feel? Beautiful. So this is more than just a kind of mm, nice idea. You actually can draw out of others what you're looking for. Einstein uh, has this beautiful um, teaching. He says, perhaps the most important question a human being can ask him or herself is, is the universe friendly or not? Because if you see the universe as friendly, you will start to notice all the ways that it supports you. And if you see it as unfriendly, you'll certainly have ample confirmation and you'll walk around feeling that you're in danger and you'll confirm that. Many years ago, um, I was uh, very um, moved, impacted by uh, a book that Many people my age uh, know well, uh, Be Here Now by Ram Dass. How many people read Be Here Now? Yeah. Um, transformative book. And, the, and Ram Dass's guru, Neem Karoli Baba, who's had a very major impact on my life, even though I never met him, um, just kind of leaped right out of the pages and touched my heart. And one of his main teachings was um, the best form to worship God is every form. And when I heard that, I kind of took it to mean that um, the divine is in everything and to keep looking for it, to keep looking for the good. Um, And it had a a really... um, transformative effect in my life. I was a school teacher at, at the time. I taught in, in uh, New York for a uh, number of years, mostly uh, fifth grade and sixth grade. And each start of the school year, 
I set out to play this little game with myself to see if I could find the key to every kid's heart in my class and just see their beauty, see their goodness, and, and bring out the best in them. And some kids, you had to wear eye shades because they were just so dazzling and so shiny and, and radiant. And some kids, uh, not so, who had learned that maybe um, uh, getting attention in ways that were more uh, disruptive or uh, um, acting out uh, was, was, the, was the way. But just about every one in the right setting, in the quieter moments, in the, the uh, more um, private moments, uh, there could be that place where that kid could be seen and, um, and come out. That was how I first applied this uh, this quality of, of this attitude of looking for the good. And it's, um, it's served me very well for many years. And it's the same uh, not only in what you look for, but also how you hear. The same principle is true in communication. Uh, a number of years ago, I was leading a, a Dharma leader training uh, here and uh, invited this um, one of the main uh, nonviolent communication trainers, NVC trainers, uh, Mickey Cashton, to, to come and share about communication. And um, she said something that really stayed with me. It, she said to the whole group, she said, you know, um, one key to wise communication is not so much what you say, but how you hear somebody else. Not just the content, but what's underneath the content. If you can listen in a wise way, you might hear their fear, or you might hear their hurt, or you might hear their worry. Not colored by your assumptions of where they're at, but to really listen, what's going on with this person? You ever have that, uh, that feeling somebody does something that's really off the wall and you say to yourself, how could they do that? You know, or why did they do that? But it's a dismissive, how could they do that? But if you go a little bit deeper and you are really curious and you want to understand, oh, how could they do that? Why did they do that? And you're interested enough to listen to what's underneath whatever the, the words or the actions are and not colored by your own filters and assumptions. Um, it's possible for uh, a whole other level of connection. Mm. So I wanted to um, apply this to our metta practice. Mm that um, there's an art of looking and listening 
to whatever our experience is with wise, loving, compassionate hearts. That's what, as much as anything, we're training ourselves to do, to to have the, the most beautiful parts of us tune into and see reality beyond the, the superficial. If we're, uh, we, we kind of um, take the stance of being the Buddha or Kuan Yin, let Kuan Yin do the, the noting or the, the listening or Jesus or Solomon or whatever figure touches you, when you take refuge in the Buddha, you're actually, that's what you are um, acknowledging inside, that there is a Buddha right in here. And the more you can invite her or him to come out, that's how you can see with new eyes. I had this experience uh, when uh, doing uh, metta practice and I was doing a, a six-week period of, of Brahma Vihara practice at IMS and I got to the difficult person. We haven't gotten to the difficult person yet, but this is just a little coming attraction. Um, and uh, there was somebody who was basically a decent human being, completely in dedicated to the Dharma, but they just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. <clears throat> That happens. There is a phenomenon, perhaps you might have noticed it, called the Vipassana Vendetta, <laughs> you know, or VV, where you don't like the way somebody walks or they breathe heavily or they, the way they put their food on their plate. Or, and if they weren't here, you'd be enlightened by <laughs> the end of the retreat. You know. There's also the corollary, by the, by the way, if you're new to this, culture called the, the Vipassana Romance, or VR, where without saying a word, you've fallen in love and gone all the way through marriage, kids, and divorce, just in your mind. Um, but anyway, there was this person who um, just was a difficult person uh, for me. And um, I was working with, uh, with the metta practice, and you know, it was okay. Um, and then I was, uh, I was doing, I was doing the metta, and all of a sudden, the image of uh, the Dalai Lama came to me. Um, and if you've ever been around the Dalai Lama uh, in a, a, a ceremony, a small enough uh, situation, sometimes people uh, give him a, a scarf, a kata, and then he kind of blesses it and puts it over your your neck as a kind of ceremonial um, uh, blessing. And um, so there was the Dalai Lama in this room and people were going through the line. And uh, I just imagined, this is all in my mind while I was kind of trying to do this metta practice. Uh, your mind can go anywhere. And then I just Im um, imagined for a few moments what it would be like to be the Dalai Lama and be on that receiving line and bless each person. And as I had this fantasy, lo and behold, in the receiving line is my difficult person. Yeah. Oh, 
they're here too, you know. <laughs> and they come up, and finally they get up in front of me, the Dalai Lama, <laughs> and hand me a scarf, and I look into their eyes, and the, 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 the thought and the words that came out, I didn't say it out loud, but in my mind was, oh, you're a Buddha too. And I put the scarf over. And in that moment, my relationship was, was transformed. Um, just seeing with a, a, in a new way. And we actually had um, a, a very um, good um, friendship. Mm. They're no longer here with us. Um, so, looking for the good inside and out. We're doing metta for self and moving to other, uh, other categories. It's the same principle to look for what's good, what's noble inside of us and in whatever category we're working with or being in this environment with this whole, whole group of, of people. Um, So metta towards self. Again, colored by what we focus on. A few nights ago, uh, Anushka was talking about the, the wise efforts, the four wise efforts, the, the two having to do with unwholesome qualities, to guard against unwholesome states arising when they've arisen to understand how to uh, learn how to overcome them, skillful means, and then to cultivate wholesome states and when they've arisen, to maintain and increase them. But um, we have a, a strong habit of noticing the unwholesome. Uh, perhaps you've seen this for yourself. And uh, anybody notice that? Uh, and, and what this is, uh, as was mentioned, this is a purification process where not only do you get in touch with all the beautiful qualities in your heart, but it shows everything in the way. It lifts that away. It's, uh, uh, if you're old enough to remember, there used to be this commercial, um, Ajax the Foaming Cleanser. Use Ajax the Foaming Cleanser. And, and it would lift the, the dirt from the grime from the sink. You know, it was just kind of, it would pull it out, and there it was, and you could... What floats the dirt right down the drain. <laughs> and it, it, I always think of the metta practice a little bit like that. You know, it's just kind of like pulling, pulling the dirt and the yuck from, from, uh, from its stuck, armored place. And this is a healthy kind of a thing. But we can get stuck in thinking, oh my goodness, look at all of this grime and dirt and yuck, and then a slippery slope to, oh, that's who I really am. This judgmental, petty, frightened, insecure, you can fill in all the blanks person. But that's not what's going on. This is from, also from Be Here Now, Ram Dass says, puts it in a, a very, um, clear way. 
as you further purify yourself, your impurities will seem grosser and larger. Understand that it's not that you're getting more caught in the illusion, it's just that you're seeing it more clearly. The lions guarding the gates get fiercer as you go towards each inner temple, but of course the light gets brighter too. So, not to get stuck on defining yourself by your flaws or the things that you see as you, as you do this. I'm, you know, I'm really uh, an aversive person. You know, I'm really uh, uh, an unkind person. Um, somebody who I know is, was saying that, who's really got a very kind, beautiful heart. But it's, it's humbling to see all of that. Or I should be more loving. I'm doing this meta practice and I've had maybe, you know, three moments of, of meta. You know, what a pathetic person. You know, oh, it's because I was never loved. Oh, it's because I'm not lovable and just, you know, you're off to the races. Or I should be able to forgive and I can't. I must be just, you know, hopeless. All the shoulds, watch the shoulds when they come up. I should be better, I shouldn't be as much. You can fill in the blanks. That's defining yourself by those, those places that the practice starts to shine on that are uh, still needing some kindness and love and attention. We do tend to see what's wrong, not just here in, in, in this meta retreat, but uh, this is uh, how we're wired up, um, that we tend to see what's wrong is a, a survival uh, mechanism. And if you know uh, any neuroscience, you're familiar with this almond-shaped cluster of neurons in, in your brain called the amygdala that scans the horizon for what can go wrong. And it's a good thing it's there, but it can get very overactive and take over, particularly if you're feeling it all stressed, then the amygdala really starts firing away. As my friend uh, Rick Hansen says, who teaches here a lot and uh, comes to the joy course that I teach a lot. He says, uh, the brain is um, like uh, Teflon for positive experiences and Velcro for negative experiences. It just sticks when something negative happens. I, I came across actually a, uh, a study that said if you have one negative encounter, uh, the average person, it takes seven positive encounters to balance that out. Somebody speaks sharply to you and you're kind of reverberating for a little while and takes seven people saying, hi, how are you, how are you doing, you know, and, and, and uh, positive uh, connections before you start to, uh, to come back. Mm. Sometimes it might take 27 or 77. Mm. But you can train yourself to see what's good and not be so, not 
change the Velcro and the Teflon formula so that um, the, the, and this is what we're doing, the, the goodness sticks and the, uh, the negative judgments don't have the same power. This is what we're doing here. We're transforming it. Little, every time you are saying the phrase or having a moment of metta, you're, you're transforming it in that way. Mm. So this is, uh, in, the, in this uh, wise efforts about seeing the unwholesome and also seeing the wholesome, don't miss the wholesome. Don't get stuck on the unwholesome, on those mind states that are suffering and lead to more suffering. Yeah, it's very important to know how to work with them and to hold them with great kindness and great compassion. Maybe in a little while we'll, we'll, we'll work with it that way. But more to also let those beautiful moments register. Uh, when I was, uh, was short, I was saying uh, in, in the Q&A the other day about the Dalai Lama, uh, with that, that guy who talked about unworthiness and self, self-hatred, he came to IMS. I was there at that, um, uh, at that three-month course. It was, it was just a couple of months after the, f- the Dalai Lama first came to the United States. This is in 1979. And it was a moment where he said, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Imagine after two and a half months of sitting, the Dalai Lama says, you're wrong. You know? <laughs> but he said it with such compassion. And basically what I was getting was, what makes you think that everything else belongs in this, the fabric of this life, of this universe, and somehow you're not good enough? You know? And he, he, he really... Uh, he really, in, by his energy and his compassion, just uh, pierced through that misperception. There's a, um, there's a line in The Course in Miracles, uh, this beautiful um, uh, teaching from um, uh, Christian uh, um, contemplative teachings. It says something like, um, believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. <laughs> believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. What makes you think that you're not good enough? But we just forget who we really are. And part of this practice is remembering who we are. This is uh, a passage some of you I'm I'm sure are familiar with. It's a beautiful passage, so I want to share it again. Um, And this can be found in uh, Jack's collection uh, uh, book, The Art of Forgiveness, Loving Kindness, and Peace. In the Babemba tribe of southern Africa, when a person acts irresponsibly or unjustly, he's placed in the center of the village alone and unfettered. All work ceases, and every man, woman, and child in the village gathers in a large circle around the accused individual. Then each person in the tribe 
speaks to the accused one at a time, each recalling the good things the person in the center of the circle has done in his lifetime. Every incident, every experience that can be recalled with any detail and accuracy is recounted. All his positive attributes, good deeds, strengths, and kindnesses are recited carefully and at length. This tribal ceremony often lasts for several days. At the end, the tribal circle is broken, a joyous celebration takes place, and the person is symbolically and literally welcomed back into the tribe. Good tribe to hang around with, huh? (laughs) So we just forget who we are, but we just need to be reminded and remember, and that's what we're doing here. I'll give you a, maybe a, a pointer to who you really are. This is um, a picture of uh, a baby who was born um, eight weeks premature. This is just uh, this past year. This is, uh, she's uh, from Australia. And when I was in Australia, a friend of mine uh, gave this to me. And uh, this picture was taken, she had not yet come to full term, the nine months, um, but um, she showed her true nature and our true nature. So I want you to meet Chloe Thomas. You can see. Can you see from back there? This is Chloe. That's who you are. You might say, well, I don't know about me. This is who you are. And if a baby comes into this world and is fed, diapered, receives minimal kind of affection. This is what comes out of them. But even, even uh, if that doesn't happen in infancy, it's still there. And I've seen it come out later on for many people. And an adult, you might say, yeah, well, maybe when I was a baby that was how it was, but uh, it's been a long time and now I'm growing up. When they put an adult in uh, an MRI machine, an fMRI machine, and if that adult has um, no pain in their body, is uh, pain-free and stress-free in their mind, they hook up to the electrodes. What they exhibit is a, a mind that is conscious, calm, creative, caring, and content. That's who you are when you're not stressed. And maybe uh, some of you are starting to just get a sense as the, some of the layers get peeled off. Those qualities are, are more and more uh, available to you. And so this is when we're taking refuge in the Buddha, we're remembering our true nature. This is uh, great Tibetan master, Nyosho Kempo. Buddha nature, the essence of awakened enlightenment itself, is present in everyone. Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore it or overlook it are deluded. There's no way to enlightenment other than by recognizing Buddha nature and authentically identifying it within one's own stream of being. So 
you can think of this as what we're, what we're doing here. And uh, this is from the Buddha. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand and so do, so do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, free of the attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of the way really understands and so for them there is cultivation of the mind. So, metta first towards ourself because that's where it is, that's where it starts. And the more you can connect with it, the more you can see it in everybody else. Your good qualities, your noble qualities. And it's a classic thing that, that uh, is suggested, and we've done it here, you might reflect a little bit on your noble qualities. Uh, and it's a practice. Um, and it's coming from a very deep place to cultivate um, love for ourselves. Uh, and sometimes the mind gets in the way and says, oh, oh I don't deserve to be happy. Uh, it's dangerous to be happy. Um, it's frivolous to be happy when there's so much suffering in the world. Uh, and the mind has all kinds of things that get in the way or sabotage truly feeling happy or true well-being, one could say, but you want to be happy, don't you? Anybody here that doesn't want to be happy? And if you're fighting your hand that's really saying, yeah, I like being grumpy, that's just your way of being happy. <laughs> but everything you do is motivated by some impulse that says, this is going to make me feel a little bit better, or this will make me feel not as bad, even if it's misguided, and often it is misguided, so it's important to know where real happiness lies. But you do want to be happy. And what we're doing is activating that very wholesome place that is truly wishing and rooting for your well-being and acknowledging, yes, I really do want well-being. And it is something that everybody here has in a very powerful way because here you are committing to nine days of bringing out your beautiful qualities nine days of developing wholesomeness and well-being. And no matter how many uh, judgments or doubts or habit patterns that have been uh, unskillful or sabotaging or whatever, whatever you think might be holding you back, I'd like you to reflect on the fact that there's something in you that's pulled you through your whole lifetime, that's gotten you to this place with a commitment to develop this for these nine days. 
there's something that you haven't been able to ignore that's even stronger than all your doubts and all your judgments. And this is just activating that. So to really see the good is the key, I think, to opening up ourselves, feeling worthy of that, um, that love, that metta. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought I'd, I'd share with you something that uh, I like to share about my own uh, metta practice, metta for self, that was very helpful for me. So I'll just, since I have the, the chance, uh, just uh, share it with you and see if, uh, if it could be helpful for you. Uh, and it was during that uh, ex- uh, longer period of metta practice where I um, was doing metta for myself for, for a week. And it was, it was going okay. It wasn't really, you know, off the charts in love with myself, but I wasn't giving myself a hard time. Uh, but after about, mm, oh, three days or so, somebody came to my mind who I knew really loved me. And then the, the thought occurred to me, it was clear, well, that person, yeah, they really, they really love me. And then I thought, this would be so much easier if I could just see what they see. And then I magically connected the dots and I said, what do they see anyway? Why do they love me? And that's when I, um, just from that flip of perspective, really uh, got a sense of, of who, I, who I am, at least who others see. So I, I invite you to just do this with me for a few moments and, and see if you, um, you might find it helpful. So if you sit in a relatively meditative way and um, bring to mind somebody who you have a really um, easy flowing connection with. And, uh, you know, maybe the dear friend that you picked um, today. And... um, if they're still your dear friend after a, a day of, uh, of practice. I know it gets complicated. Uh, but just imagine whoever it is right in front of you and just feel that, uh, that sweet flow of energy that, that you share. And that's pretty amazing in itself that two people can create a particular unique energy flow. And then for a few moments, see if you can inhabit their reality and see who they see when they're with their friend. What touches them about you? Noticing all the different qualities, maybe your goodness or your playfulness or your kindness or creativity or whatever, and just see, why do they love hanging out with you? And from their vantage point, just see if you deserve to be happy and treated well. You might send metta to yourself from their vantage point. May you really be happy and see all the goodness inside. knowing that your own well-being 
lets it shine through that much more. And now let your consciousness float back from their perspective and see if you can let it come right inside your own body and stay connected to all of those qualities that your friend sees. And just wish yourself well with that perspective, all the beauty that comes out of you that touches your friend. You can say either may I or may you, if it resonates more, be truly happy and feel all the goodness inside. And share all the love inside well. You can open your eyes. If you uh, touched something where you really see all that goodness, um, this can be a, an ongoing uh, access. Uh, it was for me. And, and it wasn't when I, by the way, it, and it was a, a major moment in my practice. And it wasn't like it was like, oh my God, you are the most amazing human being in the world. What it really came down to was, you know, you're okay. <laughs> and that was enough. It was like, oh, I'm really okay. I'm really basically a decent human being, you know, who, who likes to see others happy. Oh, that's enough. So don't go for some, you know, fantastic, you know, hero on a pedestal that's going to be, you know, on a movie marquee. Just, oh, I'm okay. Wow, what a relief. Then you don't have to be looking out and, and seeing if you can get validation from everybody else. Because if you're not feeling that, you could line seven billion people up in front and each one saying, you're really okay, and it won't connect unless you see for yourself, you know, I'm really okay. So, your noble qualities, and I ask you, by the way, this is something I, I like to, uh, to ask. Uh, suppose, by the way, if you met somebody who really understood you, say a really, really, really special friend who um, appreciated your sense of humor and, and uh, understood your, your hopes and your fears inside and, and, really, and liked your taste and uh, just got your perspective on things, who really, really got you, how would you feel about meeting somebody like that? Wouldn't it be good? There's one person that gets every joke that goes through your head. <laughs> Only one. Right? Unfortunately, you know where they are, right in your own skin. But if you met yourself from the outside, you'd be saying, wow, what a neat person. You know. Where have you been all my life? 
So it's just this kind of distorted perspective of consciousness that says, oh, I'm not good enough. Everybody else is loving you. They're seeing what comes out of you, but you're the last one to see. Albert Einstein, again, has this this phrase, we live in an optical delusion of consciousness. And just from our perspective, we don't see the truth. Now, all of those qualities that your friend sees, or that maybe you just touch for a little while, they're to be celebrated. And on a deeper level, they're both yours and they're not yours. Can you take credit for the love that shines through you? It's just something you've been gifted with. Life has gifted you with a heart that can love or with an awareness that can see and wake up. Can you say, my unconditional love is better than your unconditional love? It doesn't make any sense. My pure awareness is better than yours. No, so there's this balance between celebrating the unique way that it comes right through you and being humble enough to see, wow, what a gift I've been given. That means um, not only celebrating all the, the beautiful parts, but like a parent with a child, it means loving the whole package. Because if you say, okay, there's this beautiful thing, but there's these petty parts, then uh, it's easy to throw out the baby with the bathwater. But this, as a parent, loves even their child having a tantrum and says, oh yes, you're just getting a little wound up and confused. And you love that child anyway. That's what we're learning to do, love the whole package. So what to do with all of that negative stuff when you see it? You say, oh my God, I can't believe my mind. If you can change it from, oh, my mind, look at my mind, to, oh, look at how the mind works. And as Pema Chodron has this beautiful teaching, she says, take delight in that which sees the dukkha. Instead of feeling discouraged and blown away and, you know, and, and, uh, and defeated by all of the stuff you see, take delight that you're seeing it. And see, it's just causes and conditions, it's just habit patterns. You don't have to get into belief, oh, because this happened, I will never be. You can fill in the blank. So here's a little um, self-compassion practice that's, uh, that's become uh, very popular in recent, uh, recent times, uh, developed by Kristen Neff, who um, sits here at Spirit Rock, and uh, uh, Kristen Neff and Chris Garman. She wrote a book called Self-Compassion. Here's a very simple way to um, get a sense of how to hold all of that, um, that um, humbling stuff that you see inside. Three-part practice, okay, four-part actually, very simple. First, put your hand on your heart, and that in itself releases oxytocin and stimulates the vagus nerve and all the soothing and feeling good qualities. And you might close your eyes as you do this. Suppose you're having, going through a hard time. 
three lines. This is a moment of suffering. Just acknowledging what's here. This is a moment of suffering. Suffering is a part of life. You're not alone in this. Suffering is a part of life. May I hold my suffering with kindness and compassion. This is a moment of suffering. Suffering is a part of life. May I hold my suffering with kindness and compassion. That's all you need to do. You don't have to fix anything. You don't have to get rid of anything, change anything. All of that is part of being human, just to hold it. We did the compassion practice today. Directing that compassion towards yourself is where it all starts. So when you're doing the metta practice, tune into the good inside Don't equate the practice by what it looks like on the outside. Oh, I'm, uh, my mind is everywhere or I'm getting uh, memories and all of the bad things that I've done, which I, I've had happen uh, very, uh, very powerfully on meta retreats. Oh, look at me. How could I deserve to be happy? Don't e- and this, is, this meta practice isn't working. Don't equate the practice with what it looks like on the outside. Just come into it with a sincere motivation to wish well to yourself or to others. And whatever happens, if you do that, that's your ingredient, just your sincerity of, of intention. Every phrase that you say and every time that you can connect with it, you are undercutting very um, entrenched habits and opening your heart. And particularly, not only to see what's, what's good, but when you're feeling it, to really take it in, to take in the good. Rick Hansen, again, uh, neuroscience friend, has this uh, formula. He says, if you really want to change your brain and shift that amygdala balance, then when you're feeling a moment of well-being, hang out with it for 30 seconds. And he says, not when you're on a meta retreat, you get more of a chance to do it now. He says, if you do this in your life six times in a day, that's three minutes. I know that's a lot of moments of well-being that you might be subjecting yourself to. Um, Six times in a day, over a two-week period, you will notice a real shift, both because you're deepening your neural pathways, but also you're starting to be very uh, more attentive, to be on the lookout for what's good. So when you're here and doing the practice and you happen to feel a moment of, oh, may I be happy, and you can connect with it, or feeling it for somebody else and just feeling that warm feeling, that's when you just let your mindful awareness really register because it becomes an embodied practice, not just an idea, but that's where you deepen the impact. So 
you're looking for the goodness, opening to everything when the difficulties come, you need to be very patient, not to force anything. All you're doing is inclining the mind, inviting it, inviting the heart to open, allowing it to, recognizing when there's some moments of well-being here, being really present for it, and then just enjoying it. This is not cheating. This is the practice. So I'll, I'll close with a, a poem that I love by Dana Falls that points to this called Awakening Now. She says, why wait for your awakening? The moment your eyes are open, seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons? Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells prized and labeled? No, I can't step across the threshold, you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy. I'm afraid. My motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect. And surely I haven't practiced nearly enough. My meditation isn't deep and my prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails and the refrigerator isn't clean. Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.